podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. So let us get our party started. And by party, I mean I'll be answering questions that people sent to me from Patreon, like this one from James, who says, Peak 1980s West Indies versus Peak 2000s Australia. Five test series in each country. Who wins? So the first thing I looked at, because you mentioned in the, in the rest of your question, James, that Bob Holland took wickets against them. But I actually thought I'd look at all the leg spinners against them, or quite a few of the leg spinners. Abdul Qadir had a better record against the West Indies than he did in his normal career. Uh, there was quite a few other leg spinners like Hawani, uh, Bob Holland, as you mentioned. I think there might have been one or two others uh, that I'm forgetting the names of that also seemed to trouble the West Indies. Plus, we saw that a pretty good West Indies batting lineup still struggled against Shane Warne, uh, even into the 90s. Um, so I think based on all that, we, we know that there's probably, that was something that could have tested them more. They only played eight tests against uh, Abdul Qadir. I think they played three of those at home. They took six or, no, he might have taken eight wickets in one of those games. Uh, so I think we know that Abdul Qadir uh, troubled them. With that in mind, that gives Australia a slight advantage there. I think on Australia's batting versus the West Indies bowling is quite interesting because I suppose if you're talking peak 2000s, uh, I assume that means Langer as the opener. Langer is probably one of the weaker batters in either lineup there, but it has a quite an important position because we know that uh, against high end pace, probably Hayden, that wasn't really Hayden's speciality. So if Langer could annoy the West Indians, especially in the West Indies, um, and Ponting attacking them didn't cause any problems, I probably think that that gives the edge to the Australian team based on the fact that they have worn available to them occasionally on those West Indies pitches that are a bit more turgid, um, especially. I almost think that gives them more of an advantage in the West Indies than it probably does in Australia. Um, but I'm not sure there's that much in it. Uh, Australia's batting obviously went deeper. Uh, you know, having Gilchrist at number seven is a huge advantage over um, who, who would, you know, um, God, I've forgotten his name. Jeffrey Dujon, who, who was a fine player, but certainly not in Gilchrist, um, uh, uh, you know, level. Um, who the third Australian bowler in is really interesting there. Um, it depends on what period you pick, of course. If you have peak Jason Gillespie, it doesn't really matter who the other bowler is. Um, if you don't have peak Jason Gillespie, uh, it becomes a little bit trickier, um, especially, you know, as Gillespie got a little bit slower. But I, I think it's a, it's a brilliant question. I'm not sure I have a great answer. Based on the very little information I just had a look at then, I think maybe Australia has a slight edge. Um, but I don't think... You know, I could certainly see in, in that kind of test series, West Indies still being uh, very good as well. I suppose a lot of it might depend on literally how the Australians handle the uh, West Indian bowling attack rather than we know what the Australian bowling attack will do. I think we have a, maybe a slightly more of an idea, but it's a very good question. AB says, any insights on why Mosin Khan is performing so well in this IPL? Uh, yeah, he's doing incredibly well. And it's better than his smart stats, as you mentioned. I don't know, AB. I, I, 
he's one of those players that's been on my list. Uh, quite often you do see an Indian bowler sort of explode in the first year of the IPL, and then we see a sort of you know regression to the mean. Um, I don't know if he's one of those at the moment or if he's more like an Arshdeep Singh where uh, he's not getting the attention that he should be getting, um, but he's doing really well. I just haven't been had the time to go back through that and have a look, but we also might not know that until next year. Um, but he certainly had uh, an exceptional um, season. In fact, I think he's in an upcoming video of mine, but I, what I've just said to you is probably what I'm going to say in the video. So I, ca I can't help you much more there. Will says, with rumors Joffre Archer has broken down again, well, that rumors have been confirmed, uh, uh, a stress fracture. Should Joe Root have been fired as captain the second it became clear how badly he mismanaged Archer's workload? And no, Will, because I don't think that, I mean, Archer was involved in that. Um, uh, the coaching staff were involved in that. Like everyone, you know, the analysts might have been involved in that as well. Also, I don't think that, you know, I think we can look back to certain times in Pat Cummins' early life and Joffre Archer's early career and say they were overbold. I don't know if that's enough on its own to say that um, this is the reason that they continually broke down, especially now that Archer's broken down in so many different ways. So I don't think it's probably as clear cut as that. I, but hopefully it's a, you know, I, I, I said this when it happened with Pat Cummins uh, when he got injured early in his career and you had that whatever it was, 65 over Sheffield Shield final. That's not the way to use fast bowlers. And it's exactly the same with Joffre Archer. But I think Joffre Archer's injuries are so... I, I think bowling at 90 miles an hour means you are more prone to injuries. And if you get up towards 95, probably more so again. And, and I think that you have to be handled in a different way. And I don't believe that that has been the case for Joffre Archer at times. But I don't think that means that necessarily Joe Root should have been fired at that time. Um, although, you know, I, I'm not sure why it happened, I suppose, is, is the bigger question. Uh, Roger says, in the modern era, are we ever likely to see the sustained total dominance of all formats that the West Indies in the 80s and 90s and Australia in the 90s, 2000s had? Uh, no, probably not, Roger. And I, I suppose there's a few different reasons for that. One is that back in those days, the, the formats weren't really that different. I mean, you're talking about Australia wasn't dominant in T20. So straight away, you're looking at fewer formats. But I think just in general, uh, it's not... Um, they were closer together. Yeah, they were more matched to each other, uh, even if they shouldn't have been. They were, and the way that teams were playing them. So it kind of made a lot more sense, whereas I think now you've got players coming from so many different backgrounds who might specialize in one particular type of the game, and I don't think that there's as much overlapping skill with those two um, anymore. So I think that's your first problem. The second one is that I think North Ants proved this, um, uh, I think Cricket Scotland, uh, sorry, Scottish team pr proved this as well. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. Probably Ireland back in the day proved this. If you just focus on one format of the game, it actually gives you a huge advantage over everyone else, right? So, you know, you're suddenly in a situation where you are, your players are, are becoming specialists in something that where other countries are trying to spread their, their um, talent over three different formats. So I think it should become harder. Uh, why have we not seen England with all their resources and pioneering ideas um, dominate international cricket for the same periods over the last 40 years? Uh, because I don't think their system is set up to um, dominate international cricket. Their system is set up to produce domestic cricketers for county cricket. And international cricket has gone far beyond that in many different ways since then. And I still think that the, the system in English cricket is there to placate county members more than it is anyone else. Um, and 
and that's fine if you're a county cricket fan and you're happy with your team doing well. There's, I'm, I'm not fighting against those people. But if you're asking why they're not doing better internationally, it's because they don't have a proper system. It's not set up in the same way that other countries are, or it doesn't have the natural advantages that some other countries are. I always said that West Indies had a huge advantage over so many other nations because their pitches are so varied. They basically have Asian conditions and they have um, Australian conditions at home. Um, those are about, you know, the two most diverse conditions you could have. I think that really helped the West Indies develop back in the day. England probably has one of the least um, uh, spread conditions of anywhere. And I think that's a huge problem and has been for a long time, but is probably, you know, more so now. AB says, is there any data on whether you're more or less likely to get out from false shots when you're playing an aggressive shot versus defensive? My intuition is that you play more false shots when attacking, but are less likely to get out of each of these false shots. <laughs> no, your intuition's completely backwards. Um, uh, I think off the top of my head, and I think this is right because I looked this up recently for some something else I was doing. Uh, for every five false shots, uh, for every five false attacking shots, you are dismissed in a test match. And for every 10 um, uh, false shots that are defensive, you are dismissed. So in, in every way, you are much more likely to stay in playing a defensive shot. A lot of that is to do with, with simple things like if you're defending, your edges are probably less likely to carry. Um, if you're attacking, you're opening yourself up to other forms of dismissal that you're probably not with, uh, with defense. Um, you're not in as good a position. Your head's probably not always over the ball. All those sorts of things, uh, you know, affects what you're doing. Attacking shots just aren't very sound shots, um, but, you know, we have to make runs at some stage. Christopher says, is Stonewood, Archer, and Mahmood all being out? Can we just say that's bad luck? Or is English cricket doing something very wrong that leads to fast bowlers breaking down? Is England cricket doing... Uh, these things do seem to go in a bit of a patch. I don't think we have enough data on international cricketers to ever make that assumption. You're talking about four injuries there, right? They're all bad and they're all happening at the same time. But you are really talking about four injuries. I think the best way to be able to look at that would be to go back through first-class cricket and see if there is a pattern in first-class cricket. Um, if you see that pattern in first-class cricket, then you could make the suggestion that England are doing something very wrong. I think that is very, very possible. Um, but as it currently stands, I don't see that. I don't see the four injuries at the same time being a huge concern. Remember, Australia had... Australia still had four generational fast bowling, um, uh, fast bowling, fast bowling talents, and it took them years to get three of them on the field at the same time. Um, uh, and so, and even now, James Pattinson is, you know, well, he's already retired from international cricket, and he's still quite young. So they've lost out on one of them. So I think these things do happen. I think there's a lot of science involved with it, but I don't think the science is looking at your international team. I think you should be looking at all bowlers bowling at over 80 or 85 miles an hour in your setup uh, to see if there's a, a bigger problem there. Will, Will says, Brian Lara's 400 or 5 run records ever be broken? Will says, Will, Brian. Will, Will. Um, how incredible Zara is it that Lara could set his mind to reclaim that record after Hayden broke it? I think that's what we, probably tells you more about Brian Lara than anything else, that the record was taken from him and he just broke it again. Like, I don't think we... As good as Ponting was at his absolute peak, as good as Sanchez Tendulka was over his entire career... I think Lara could touch levels that neither of them could, but it also says something about the fact that probably Lara, uh, sorry, probably Ponting and well, Tendulka certainly has probably eclipsed him because of the length of his career, and Ponting probably uh, eclipsed him as well. Probably says something about the way they got the most out of themselves in a way that Lara didn't. Uh, 
a first-class record, I think, definitely could be broken. Test cricket one's interesting. I suppose in a if we had a second division of sec, of test cricket, I could see that being slightly more likely. I wonder now if teams are just a little bit more worried about winning and losing because of the World Test Championship and all that sort of and everything that comes on. Plus, I don't know if anyone's batting long enough these days to, to be in for four hundred. First-class record, I certainly could see being beaten. I don't know how, but. I could certainly see it being beaten. Test one, yes, but maybe it would take longer, would be my guess. Nort says, does Zach Crawley have compromising pictures of Rob Key? Uh, well, they're friends, if that makes, you know, Rob Key was basically his, his coach, but I don't think Zach Crawley's in the team because of Rob Key. I think he would have been in the, in the team regardless. Um, based on what he did most recently for England and, you know, all the other problems with English batting at the moment. Um, look, I, I mean, I think I'm quite on the record of saying that I, I, while I don't think Zach Crawley is done and you should get rid of him forever, I just don't see how he's going to make consistent test runs with the technical problems that he has and the fact that he's not a consistent run scorer in first-class cricket. If he had one of those sort of fixed, I'd be willing to take more chances on him being the fact that there just aren't many other England batters around. With both of those, I just think that you... I think he definitely has the talent and the style of game to be successful in Test Match Cricket. But I worry that by the time he gets it all together, he's going to be averaging about 25 in Test Match Cricket. Um, and even if he has a good 10 or 15 games and brings it together, well, his average is going to go up to 35 and he's still, you know, chances are being dropped at any stage. So I, I sort of worry about the entire picture of Zach Crawley rather than anything individual with... Um, individual selections uh, but the rob key thing yeah I d it doesn't really play in this position because i honestly think they would have picked him if rob key not even got his job but rob key does have a relationship with zach crawley which is gonna be really interesting for him going forward because zach crawley's gonna fail a lot uh johnny said you often say that a good all-rounder is worth two players uh well i say a great all-rounder was worth two players. And we've seen that like a handful of times ever. Good all-rounder is probably worth more than one one player, but they're, even they're very rare. And that Bradman was worth two batters. By this metric, who has been worth the most number of players across a single cricket season? Is he a batter averaging 150? Would be three batters. A bowler averaging 14 might be worth two bowlers and all-rounder. Uh, yeah. I don't know, Johnny. Actually, that's a really good question. I don't, because a lot of my numbers are not, you know, over a season. Um, you know, I might be looking over a year. I'd have to have a look if Imran had a special year or if Sobers took a lot of wickets. You would have had to have thought that Sobers going to New Zealand or England with his swing bowling uh, might have had a spectacular series or two, but nothing comes directly off the top of my head. Um, I'm trying to remember what, what Proctor did. What, what did it? Well, I'm trying to remember. I suppose it didn't quite average, but Proctor would have been close, um, uh, you know, in his short career would be, would be one off the top of my head. I mean, I suppose Hadley took an absolute ton of wickets in that series that he made a hundred against uh, the West Indies, but I don't think that was a very long series either. Um, it, it's a really, really good question. There might be some Murali or even Harbhajan Singh series where they took a, you know, a, an absolute truckload of wickets at a very low average. But, um, but yeah, I think, uh, Mike Proctor is the one that probably springs out off the top of my head, but I can't remember what his batting average was, um, but certainly a fantastic player. Uh, Alexander Thomas says, in tests, how much value should be placed on a number eight's ability to bat? England has struggled with this for a bit, as most of their bowlers don't bat. Yeah, it's, 
It's one of those things that if you can't take 20 wickets, having a number eight who can bat really doesn't help anyway. It's such a silly way to think about your team. The problem there is that, of course, a handy number eight, so let's say uh, Pat Cummins who can hang around or, you know, uh, Mitchell Stark. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other teams out there um, uh, that have uh, players who had the ability to be in that position and still be a sort of a plus sort of, bat, you know, Paul Harris and Ashley Giles back in the day. Um, those sorts of players are, you know, a shout all um, of recent time. Um, those sorts of players are so incredibly important. But the thing is, if your bowling attack can't take 20 wickets, I can't see how the extra batting at eight will ever help. And so I think it's a, I think it's something that teams worry about more than they should. I think if you have, especially if you have seven strong batting uh, options, I really think you should, we worry more about the fact that if you only have four bowlers, are they going to be able to take 20 wickets? Um, and I think too often teams are a little bit worried about that. But the reason they're worried about that is because, you know, we see teams be completely tanked by their tail again and again. But essentially, that still comes back to your, your batting isn't making enough runs, right? Like if, so I just think that there's no, you know, outside of when Jason Holder was batting at number eight or Daniel Vittori at number eight might've been another one. There really aren't number eights that make that much of a difference. I, I don't personally believe. Um, and it's a batting position that really you only make runs at if the top order has made runs already. It's very hard to find a number eight who continually gets you out of trouble because a number eight is a hugely limited player, right? We're talking about someone who at best is going to average 25 to 30, uh, you know, and a magical number eight might average 35 to 40, right? And they're very, very rare. Um, they are, I, I can't imagine anyone outside of Vittori, maybe Jadeja and Holder are anywhere near that level of recent times. Um, and traditionally, I don't think there's many, you know, maybe Sean Pollock, um, although he batted more, I think he might've done better at number nine. So realistically, your number eight is going to average 25 to 30 and be someone who can hang around and be handy. If your top order isn't any good, I just don't see that as being that important. It's a good question though. Satchmo says, why did Ian Botham's peak last for only around four years? I think there's a few things. I don't think he took cricket particularly seriously um, in the way that I think he was so much more talented than everyone else. He probably didn't put everything in. Obviously, he'd let his body completely go. He went from being one of the best athletes we'd ever had in cricket to not being one of the best athletes. I also think that the West Indies probably dented, maybe not his confidence, but a lot of that early peak, I, I don't think any of that early peak comes against peak West Indies, does it? I'm trying to think of, was I have to go back and check, but I think it was his first, 28 or 33 tests or 35 tests, whatever it was, was probably before he ran into the West Indies. They probably sorted him out a little bit as well. And, and you know, those sorts of things happen. But I honest, honestly believe that if he looked after his body, looked after his game, I think he could have gone on to have a much better career in the second half than he did in the first half. He was still, you know, the fact that he played so long and took so many wickets and still played some very good, important innings after that tells you that it wasn't, it wasn't like a Tim Bresnan situation or maybe what we're seeing with someone like Shardul um, at the moment. Well, you know, this was a generational talent who probably just didn't focus on the game in the way that he should have because he was probably good enough to cruise, right? And some players do that, you know. We, we, I think uh, Dan Brennick has this theory, and I think I've looked at it before, that... Dean Jones, if you look at Dean Jones's record up until the point he was number one in the world, and then afterwards in one day cricket, it's a completely different player. And 
what he did was to get to number one in the world, he took all these chances and played like a maverick and played like a combination really of, I suppose, what Ricky Ponting became and what Javid Meandad was, was doing beforehand, uh, you know, and then he gets to number one and you see him slow down. And I'm not sure if Dino ever talked about this, but there's absolutely no doubt that once he got there, it changed the way he thought about things. And I wonder if a, a similar thing happened in a different way for Ian Botham. Once he was sort of, you know, this incredible player, if that was enough for him and he knew he'd be able to sustain that. Not everyone, you know, not everyone tries to get the most out of themselves. Um, and, you know, he had a lot of interests in life. I think that's fair to say. Ian says, Matthew Mock getting the England white ball drop says a lot about the respect women's cricket is rightly starting to get. Can you see a time when we have a female head coach of a men's team? Yeah, definitely. I think we'll definitely get a female head coach. I think the idea that a woman can't coach, I mean, we've already seen Belinda Clark, I suppose, is the best example in cricket so far of uh, someone having a major role in men's cricket. Uh, she never really wanted to be a coach, so her, her role was uh, more like a general manager, director of cricket type role. Um, the thought that we can't have, uh, I actually think it's, it's weird that we have so few women's coaches even in the women's game, but certainly in the men's game at the moment, I think is a huge missed opportunity uh, for diverse thinking, uh, for really expanding what cricket coaching can be. And I think there is a hold off there. But yeah, the Matthew Mott one in, in general, I mean, obviously Matthew Mott's coached men a lot as well and is very well respected. And obviously Brendan McCullum played a big role there. But I do believe that um, I think his particular jump is uh, maybe not a sign of the times, but a sign that, People are looking at things slightly differently than they used to. Beautiful. All right. Let's see what we have in the room. All right. How are you? How you doing, mate? Hey, Jared. How are you? Very good. What's your question? So, uh, Jared, my question is a little long, so please bear with me. So, my <laughs> question is regarding Joe Clark. I think uh, there's been a lot of talk around him, and I think you have been pretty quiet. Uh, but recently, I have read like a couple of fluff pieces pieces about him like uh, it started with I guess Matt Roller wrote a piece about him suddenly and you know and then obviously uh, Josh Dubell wrote one which was really uh, like you know give him a chance but honestly like is it like a media thing where they suddenly start hyping one player up I mean despite his uh, you know criminal past and overlooking that and also my question is regarding how do we like is it that tough for journalists to back off and say that oh no I might have screwed up with this one because given the online uh, presence of uh, George and, you know, the conversation that has been happening and, and you know, how it's going, it's been a little tough to uh, imagine uh, someone, especially as reputed as George, who has his own forte and who's holding his fort, uh, you know. But it, it's it's a very uh, interesting concept. Like, firstly, suddenly everyone is uh, flooding these Joe Clark pieces, which is, which is out of the blue because I don't know if he has done that much to suddenly burst into the scene. I mean, I think he had a pretty uh, average PSL too. Well, I can tell you why everyone's talking about him. It's because every other English batter in the world has been tried, right? So there's the, there's the first answer to your question. He's probably, I first started hearing about him when he was, what, 16, 17. Everyone thought he was, you know, a future Joe Root type level player. Um, had he not have been involved in this scandal, you talk about his criminal past. I don't think he's been charged with anything criminal, right? Uh, he was obviously... Uh, the judge absolutely slapped him down quite rightly for the nonsense that he was involved with. And his friend obviously um, has gone to jail for rape and Joe, and, and Joe Clark will always be tainted by that. But I don't think he has a criminal path, but I think if he was not involved in that scandal, I'd be shocked if he wouldn't have played a game for England already. 
So I think there is a point of which where people are, and I haven't talked to George or Matt Roller about this or anyone who's written about this piece, uh, but I think there's a point at which uh, it's quite clear that England are getting closer to picking him. So if you're asking why they're writing about him, my guess is they're hearing things that he's close to being, uh, he's on the verge of the team. I don't think they're just writing about him. But, but as you said, I, I can't remember what his first class numbers were, um, but I don't think they were that spectacular. Um, but everyone knows how talented he is. Uh, and he's certainly a next level uh, talent, certainly an international qu quality player, whether he makes it as an international player or not. So I think that, that, that answers why they're writing about him. Uh, the the thing about journalism uh, is, and I can't, I haven't talked to George or Matt about this, or or Jonathan Liu who just wrote another piece uh, on the other side of it, but all these people are coming to it from different viewpoints. I think it, you know, knowing George really really well, George tries to forgive people as much as possible, um, and always looks. Uh, George will always look for the second chance option on a on a human being. Um, uh, that's, I think, part of his his mantra as a person. I think he got the piece wrong. I think he didn't understand, like a lot of men, they don't actually understand what these things say to women directly. Um, I think it was silly of the cricketer to not really factor in that women uh, were going to be upset about this. Forget men for a minute, because there were plenty of men who were upset. But I, I think it was silly for the cricketer to not understand that women were going to see this issue completely differently than than men did. Um, especially there's enough women cricket fans and cricket writers and cricket women in media um, out there uh, now that I don't, don't think that that's an acceptable way of looking at things anymore. Um, uh, Jonathan Liu's piece was was uh, on the other side of that. Um, so it's, I don't know if you haven't seen that one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that you didn't mention that because that is part of it, right, is... Jonathan Liu comes from one point. Matt Roller comes from another point. George comes from that from that point. I would say all three of those people would probably vehemently back their articles, right? Because they wrote them. They wouldn't have probably wouldn't have written the Joe Root, uh, Joe, Joe Root piece, the Joe Clark piece, if they didn't feel it. Um, my personal views: Look, I've I've certainly been in franchise, I'm not with not with Joe Clark, but with other players. Uh, where teams have asked me, uh, you know, whether they should get this player. And I said, no, based on, uh, you know, um, other trials around the world and, and other things uh, with, with particular teams, uh, I'm certainly not going to come out and write a, write a pro Joe Clark piece. If he does get picked, I'll probably write a piece about, uh, and I haven't heard any whispers about that, but I'm assuming everyone's writing about it. So he must be getting close to being picked. I think Rob Key talked about him recently. Um, uh I'm more than happily write that. I'm not going to write about a player who's not even playing yet. If you, I mean, you know, if, if that's what you're asking, I haven't written about, um, you know, uh, uh, him because he's not he's not playing at that level. One thing I found interesting was that John, Johnson Lou said that he could play for franchise teams and he could play for Nottingham, um, but he couldn't play for England. I kind of that bit I don't really understand. Um, uh, he's, re he's representing the county of Nottingham, right? He's representing, you know, I can't remember which we have a big bash team it was. Um, he's representing all those different uh, beliefs. I, I'm not sure that I get that um, side of things. My big problem with Joe Clark is I just, it, it, what, watch what happened with Azim Rafiq. Um, and I think that Azim Rafiq, you know, when he's, when the comments came out about him and the anti-Semitic comments, uh, he went out of his way to, to reach out to people on the, in, in the other community. 
that that he affected. Where's Joe Clark done that? I haven't seen it. I'm not saying he's not sorry. I'm not saying he doesn't agree with that. But I kind of, I think Jonathan Lou might have mentioned this, and this probably would have been my angle if I'd written a piece of when you have someone like that, and I've seen this with match fixers, right? There are genuine match fixers who really understand that they fucked up, right? And they, and the ICC then use them to train other players, right? And literally say, here's this guy, he's now going to come to you and say this. There is a huge problem with misogyny in the way that cricketers treat women, in my experience. And um, Joe Clark, if he is reformed, and who knows if he is, is a perfect person to go, do you know what? This is what I used to do. This is what I used to think. And this is what I shouldn't, uh, you know, why you shouldn't do it and why it's a stupid way of thinking about these things and what it led to, right? Joe Clark is, uh, has never been charged with rape, as far as I'm aware. I, I obviously, wasn't found guilty of rape. But he was involved in a game that led his friend to be involved uh, to be charged with rape, right? And and I think that on on that particular note, like he's got a lesson out there of um, uh, you know, there's a lot of young men involved in cricket that say things, and I don't think they actually understand what rape is. Like legitimately, I think they think rape is the old fashioned hold someone down and do it. They don't understand that uh, about consent. Um, they don't understand about, you know, someone being passed out in some occasions and all these sorts of things. And I think Joe Clark had, had the ability to, to do that. As far as I'm aware, and I'm basing this also on Jonathan Liu's article, he hasn't done that. I find, it, I find it harder in that sort of situation to just forgive him. But at a certain point, I think we also have to be aware that there are so many international athletes, not just in cricket, but certainly in cricket, who we personally would detest their politics, their behavior, uh, how they look at women, how they look at gay people, how they look at races, how they look at ethnicity. Um, uh, that is a, that's a truth of like, you know, um, uh, so many professional athletes have these sorts of views. They, you know, they grow up in these echo chambers um, and a lot of what they believe is toxic and is nonsense. And sometimes they act on it and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they encourage it, sometimes they don't. It's where do we draw the line at where a player can and can't play is I think a very, very good conversation to have. My bigger concern with, with Joe Clark is I just don't feel like I, I just don't feel like he has actually uh really, really distanced himself from this this situation um in a positive way, in a way that he could have. Um but if he's gonna play for Nottingham, for me personally, I'm like, well he's already representing a cricket team or lots of cricket teams in his case. Uh, to suddenly stop that in England, uh, I'm, I'm not. I, I don't. I don't see that argument. Um, but I can see why other people are certainly uh, uh, on that side. But I understand why people say he deserves a second chance. But second chances come with responsibilities as well, right? Um, and in this particular case, I'm not sure that 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 has been um, completely justified. But look, it's a the whole thing is such a fascinating issue, and I think that maybe the bigger problem here is that. We're talking about three articles. I'm sure there's more articles out there, but the, the majority of the, the articles in the mainstream press are written by um, uh, male cricket writers. And part of the reason is that women cricket writers uh, maybe haven't been asked, or there aren't enough of them as well, but also they don't want to get involved um, in, in these sorts of issues. Not all sports writers uh, want to get involved in these issues. And it's, you know, there's, I, I'm more than willing to say that I'm probably not a, a fan of Joe Clark and, you know, not, I'm never going to back him. 
um, in any sort of way. I'll try and analyze him as, uh, uh, as normally as I can if he does uh, play, if he comes across me. But I'm ne certainly never going to back him. But I can also understand that the people on the other side are like, he made a mistake when he was young and he deserves a second chance. Um, but yeah, it's, there's, no, there's no good way of talking about this because there are people who are going to believe he should never play again and there are other people who are going to believe that he should definitely play again. Those two sides, as we've seen in every part of society now, they're absolutists and it's a very hard thing. And uh, there are probably very good points in all three of those articles um, that were written. Um, I think I read Matt's and Jonathan's. I don't think I read George. No, I certainly didn't read George's. Um, there were certainly you know, good points on both sides and both of that, but that's not the world we live in, right? <laughs> um, and, and, and it's not how we work. But you know, at the same time, I don't think that, you know, uh, Joe Clark has certainly been allowed to go about having, uh, you know, earning money and having a, uh, having a living. Um, and that is part of what being a professional cricketer is. It's a job, right? And I suppose what, what some people would say is that it's, it's a job to play it domestically and to play in franchises. And at the international level, um, it's at that stage you're representing the country. I kind of think at the international level, we've seen enough players, and I've certainly talked to enough players who still see that as a job, right? That, that's their ability to make the most money in their career more often than not, less so now with the IPL. But, uh, you know, we're restricting someone's earning capacity at that point. These, these are real things. Should he, you know, should he, um, I mean, he brought disrepute, I can't say the word now, but he, he brought uh, bad things into cricket that didn't need to be involved in cricket through his behavior. Um, you know, the industry, and it looks like, I, I think the industry has already sort of, what, blackballed him? No, what would you say? You know, shadow banned him um, in a way, because I do think he would have already played for England uh, had he not been involved in, in what he has been involved with. But I think there are many players, not just for England, right across the board, who have done things um, that should have seen, uh, you know, that should have seen them suspended or should have seen uh, much harsher terms on them and it hasn't happened. And I don't know if cricket is in the position to be a moral arbiter, being that cricket itself is not particularly a, the cleanest sport that it should be and is not always ahead of these issues. Um, you know, it was only, what was it, the 2012 or the 2016 World T20 when the uh, women were getting paid a, a, a lesser per diem than the men were at the same tournament, right? Not the same as what Joe Clark was involved in, but it's all from the same pot, right? The women weren't, well, do women, are we saying women have less laundry and uh, want to eat less for dinner time? It's kind of a ridiculous thing to give them a smaller per diem. So, you know, cricket is in that weird spot. And, and I think you find this with sports right across the board. I think one of the most interesting things in the world at the moment is the NBA and China. It's such a fascinating relationship and you see them everywhere. But thanks for your question, mate. Sure. Atish. Hi, can you hear me? I can. What's your question, mate? My question is also a little long. <laughs> so uh, every day, like when I watch the IPL, commentators keep going on and on about how the IPL has revolutionized Indian cricket, and it like really brings out a lot of these players from like nowhere, and they get a chance to express themselves in the biggest stage, right? But at the same time, we also see that a lot of them are never really picked for India or never given a long enough rope, and all the good superstars of India cricket are consistently made into anchors by that IPL franchise. So it's like, now Ardik Pandya is an anchor, which is like, I think the worst thing that has ever happened to Indian cricket. Life. Oh, sorry. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, so and at the same time, people like Sanju Samson or Rahul Tripathi, who who play these really high impact innings, uh, mm. are kinds of like loose cannons. They don't really care about the wicket that much. They just go after anything. They never get like a long enough look, a uh, uh, long enough rope. And in case of Rahul Tripathi, have never even like got an India cap. And these players always like wait for one IPL season the entire year, and that's when they get to. Experiences in the uh, on the biggest stage, and Sunny Sampson has been around since 2013. And I'm just imagining mm. if they could travel and like we say, it's not about them to play other leagues. Eh? If they could travel and just become professional franchise cricketers, like I'm just imagining Sunny Sampson in Big Bash, right? He likes bounce and he loves mm. to get spin. So I'm just imagining he'd like probably be like the one of the best players in the Big Bash if he could just travel. So my question basically is that. I could have been good, but it seems to benefit foreign players, like lesser known foreign players like Robert McCoy, for example, than it does maybe Indian players because they never then they are able to get to the next stage. But someone like Robert McCoy, after he struggled in the last match he played, uh, but I'm not against DC, then he came back and took three wickets and looked good. Right? So, yeah. Yeah, I think you're looking at a, a little bit to on individual cases, right? We have already seen that. I mean, you could say that the Pandyas are part of that system, right? Like, uh, they, they come from a more, well, probably a more non-traditional cricket path, and there's heaps of them, right? I think what the IPL has opened up is the ability to find talent everywhere. So Umran Malik is probably the latest example of that. And uh, for you, that talent to be fast-tracked. What you're then talking about is more that within the Indian team at the moment, that especially towards the one-day cricket and t20 cricket is this sort of fascination that they have with anchors i think that's separate to your other argument right so rahul tripathi you're not going to find many bigger fans of, of him than me i've been saying this for years massively underrated t20 player not sure he's in india's seven best ba batters though right um if you then look at um at Sanjay samson Incredible player, but they do have K.O. Raul, who, who probably will end up with a similar strike rate. Obviously, now plays in a different way, but, you know, was even more attacking probably back in the day than Sanju Sampson was. Um, and they've got Rashad Pant. So they, as far as wicket keepers who can hit the ball, they've already sort of got those those things covered. Uh, so And, and, and Sanju Sampson has also had to go up against, you know, uh, you know, Dhoni in that time. Now, if you, even if you look at him as a pure batter, as talented as he, as he is, um, I'm not sure, again, he's in the top six best batters in India at any one time. So it's finding more talent. You're right that then what they're doing, and this is a very Australian and Indian thing, I've been talking about this for a long time in white ball cricket, is they bring everyone back and try and make them into more um, responsible players. In fact, the Andrew Simons thing, I don't know if you saw my Andrew Simons video, but on that, that's essentially what they did to Simon. Simon should have ended up in one-day cricket with a strike rate of around 105, 110, maybe even more than that probably averaging anywhere between 30 and 35. Instead, Australia getting averaging 40, but with a strike rate of 92, because that's the way they think about one-day cricket. And I'm not saying they're wrong, because they've won a, a lot of World Cups, but I also think that they haven't, and, and they did, they've been doing it with Maxwell for years as well. And you look at Rish, and you look at Ponting doing it with Rishabh Pant, but also, as you said, Hardik Pandya, KRL is oh, heartbreaking for me. But if they do it, and then they did the Rishabh Pant, and now they're doing it to Kaur Rahul. It's like at a certain point, these players who can strike at 135, sorry, 155, 160, and average 30 or 25, incredibly important to you. 
And, and I wonder if that's a problem. But I think that's separate to the, the other thing that you're talking about. I think that's a mindset within how they're being used. But the, where the IPL is good for cricket is that we are uh, for Indian cricket is they're, they're literally finding talent in spots that they weren't finding it before. And then it is being fast-tracked to the top level of professionalism. So it's, it, it's not like the old days where you went from being an amateur to um, playing for India uh, because you bowled well in the nets or anything like that, right? Now you're going through development systems. It, you know, chances are you will have played in the IPL or you've at least been trained with an IPL team or been a netballer with the IPL. You'll have had access to professional coach, to top level professional coaches, to top level um, facilities. All those things are helping Indian cricket. This other thing that you're talking about, which is sort of twofold, one is the, the anchor issue. The other one is that we know that in cricket, developing your game in different locations is hugely important. Can Indian cricket ever have, they would almost need an A team and a B team traveling consistently to get enough experience into all those other players for when they need it. The better way to do that is to allow Sanju Sampson to play in the big bash, as you said, and, you know, um, allow um, some of the other players to play in the Manzanzi league and the hundred and the ICPL, wherever, or not the Manzanzi league, whatever the new South African one's going to be major league cricket, whatever it may be. But that then clashes with the business plan of the fact that the only way you can see the Indian stars is in the IPL. I'm not sure they need to do that, um, especially as the IPL gets bigger and bigger, but I can understand why that's there. But again, it goes back to Roger's question earlier about England. It's like it, the IPL is not really set up to make Indian players better. All right? it's, it's set up to make billions of dollars from TV revenue and streaming revenue. And when you have a situation like that, there's always going to be uh, problems with it. You know, the absolute best time for the Big Bash to be played from an Australian cricket perspective, was always going to be February, March. But then you would have missed out on the school holidays crowd in Australia and the, uh, you know, and, and, and the fact that Australians watch a lot more cricket in December and January than they do in any other period. And breaking that habit would have been a big risk, right? It's not that anyone thought that it would be a better tournament. It's a terrible tournament <laughs> the way it's been. It's in the middle of the test summer. But that, that's how these things work. Does that make sense, mate? Yeah, yeah it does. Thanks. Beautiful. Thank you. Athava. Have I got that right? Athava? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, I had a question about Ashwin and uh, the IPL. As he's been batting recently and he's scored runs in both the power play and at the death. I wanted to ask, what kind of effort does it take to turn kind of red ball batting ability into white ball or just t20 batting ability because he hasn't really batted well in white ball perfect before this i don't think yeah i don't think he's pretty good in tests yeah i think what they're trying to use him in is situations that fit into his ability and i don't think any other team's ever done that because in most teams he would be the eighth best batter right but on this team, he's the seventh best batter. And so because of that, they've gone out of their way to try and find him situations that he work in. And look, it probably cost him a game uh, recently when he made that slow 50. You know, there are other games where he struggled. There have been other games where it's come off, you know. I would say that if I was Rajasthan at the moment and I was working for them, I'd probably say it was a win, even if it looks a bit, I, I don't know what's he's averaging, about 22 or 23 with a strike rate of 140. I, I would take that as a massive win considering we know what he is. The problem with someone like Ashwin, as you said, is he has red ball talent. But if you look at his red ball talent, it's still limited. 
He's a limited batter who happens to be good in certain situations in red ball cricket. Uh, he's, it's not like he's averaging 45, right? Uh, it's, and it's not like he's a very good batter in all conditions. Brilliant batter in Asia can be very good on certain kinds of uh, pitches outside of Asia. And he's obviously very good at staying in at certain times. And because he's so clever and, you know, any cricketer that's very clever. So if you look at someone like him or Shane Warne, um, you know, when, when you're working or, or Graham Swan's probably another very good example of that. Those sorts of players who are very clever have the ability to make probably slightly extra runs than they, than their talent allows them to. But your, your general question is really tough. So what Trent Woodhill always always did was he would say, well, what are your best shots in red ball cricket and how can we accentuate them? So for instance, if your best shot is the cut shot, okay, we now need you to be able to cut balls that are full and are going to hit the top of middle stump. And so what he would do as a batting coach is ping a bunch of balls at the top of middle stump and try and get their, this player to cut them. And you'll find that that has a limited effectiveness then the other side is more the Julian Wood side. I, I don't know. I think he's working for one of the franchises. Might be Punjab. Not Punjab. I think it's Punjab. Um, I'm not sure if he's a consultant or an actual batting coach. But his side of it is accentuate power, accentuate power. I think both of those methods probably uh, make sense. I think in Ashwin's case, you watch him playing, it's probably more to do. He's probably going more down that Trent Woodhill of, these are my scoring areas. How do I make it so that I can... I can continue to score in those areas, but even from balls that are not quite there. And the the problem with that is that for a lot of those guys, it's, and I, I remember talking to a really good red ball player about this a couple of years ago who really struggled with it. Um, and, and, and he said that he could get the technique and he could understand that the science of it, but what he could never shake off was the, the ability, the, the thinking process that, that, that he started with, which is, I have to make sure I don't go out this next ball. And if you look at Kane Williamson and Steve Smith and even someone like Virat Kohli, who's a, a brilliant white ball player in many ways, I think they still bring that red ball energy across. And it's that constant fight that some players have between it. I think what happened with Ashwin is that they kind of freed him of that by making him play in all these different roles. Um, and also because he's, he's probably one of those cricketers who's always thinking about the next ball from a tactical point of view, more so than I think more cricketers do. So he's probably like, well, it doesn't matter if I get out this next ball because A, B, C, D, uh, you know, they've sent me in and it doesn't matter. I've already faced eight balls now. Um, I've hit two boundaries. If I go out now, it doesn't matter. Uh, and then the opposite of he goes out in some situations and he's like, I've got to get to this over mark. So I think that probably suits the way he thinks about cricket. I, I don't know if Rajasthan had that thinking when they used him in that role. But his ability to gear up and gear down, if, if you look at the difference between him and Mitch Santner, who tried to do a similar thing in, in this IPO, I think Mitch Santner is a really talented cricketer, and I think he's a very smart bowler. But there's many times I've watched him in the field or with the bat where I think he's on autopilot, which is fine. It's a normal cr cricketer thing to do. For instance, when he ducked the last ball of the um, 2019 World Cup um, and didn't run, right? or didn't have, even have the conversation about running in that situation. I feel like someone like Ashwin is always thinking. So what they're doing is they're allowing him to make almost ball-by-ball -ball decisions on what he's going to be doing with the bat. That actually is a strength of Ashwin's. Where he doesn't have the strength is the ability to regularly clear the boundaries. So what he's trying to do is take on his matchups and hope that he has a bit of luck. And I think at this stage, he's probably he's probably – I had a combination of both. There's been some, probably some pretty ordinary innings from him and a couple of really good innings from him. But if you look at his overall numbers, what they needed was someone who could 
prop up that seventh batting position. And because of what Hetmeyer and Butler have been able to do, I mean, someone from Rochester contacted me at the start of the season and they said, how do you think we'll go? And I said, if you're top four or five, fire, I have, and really fire, I have no worries. If you're top four and five, don't fire. Uh, it could be a horrendous season. I think that they've, they've done enough. And then someone like Ashwin and Parag just chipping in has, has, been, has been more than enough. Thanks for your question, mate. Who we got next? Antas. Hi, Jared. Hey, Yun. Yeah, my question is that a uh, few days ago, if you notice that there's one, I don't know which, but the cricket news website that posted, some small website, posted that time, Timal Mills has been ruled out of the IPL for his injury. In a few minutes, Timal Mills uh, replied to him that uh, that is not the case. I'm not injured. I don't know what you're talking about. But he mm-hmm. took them down the three minutes and uh, like one week or so fast uh, goes, goes by and then we get the news that he actually has been uh, ruled out of the IPL and uh, in the same announcement, we get informed that Tristan Stubbs from South Africa has been his replacement. So mm. this all seems to be a coincidence that he was not performing well for MI. So MI chose a batter that they can uh, retake for the next season, who they see a high potential and they don't have to shell more money for them for him in auction. So I guess I just want to know, is the this uh, getting replacements in the IPL process, is, is it transparent? Like, can it be cheated and uh, or is it well scrutinized? It could certainly be cheated. I don't, it's not like the IPL have doctors checking if he's really fit or not. So yes, we've seen it in World Cups. We've seen it in everything. I will say this though. I remember a story a couple of years ago that came out where a r- reporter wrote that a player had a serious injury and wouldn't be coming back that season. That player then went online to completely diss that story. And, and it turned out that that reporter had basically had medical information that had been leaked to them that the player hadn't yet even got. So... It's trickier than just what you think, if that makes sense. So these these things can, you know, sort of pair, you know, split off into random directions. But yes, no, it can be cheated. It's cheated all the time. Uh, it might have just been that they were trying to get someone else on their books for next year, as you said. And it might have just been that they'd seen em- enough of Tamal. Also, Tamal gets a lot of injuries, right? It, they could have just been like, look, you, obviously you don't think your injury is bad enough, but we're probably gonna, not going to play you again this year anyway. Um, you're not fit for the next couple of games. Um, so we're going to move on and do someone else. Um, you know, I've been in situations like that, you know, with franchises before. So it's not all dark arts, if you know what I mean. It might be a little bit more subtle than that. Um, but it could also be exactly what you said. <laughs> Thanks for your question. All right. I think I've got one more. Shramana. Hi. Hey, Shramana. What's your question? Yeah, and hypothetical, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Alright, so since cricket is not a game of like brute power or strength and it's flexible with body types also, mm-hmm. do you think, suppose we give our girls all that we give our boys and then we make a team of say 5-5 five, five or 6-5, like in a mixture, like in tennis doubles, mixed mm-hmm. doubles. So we make a team like that and make two teams like that and we make them click. How do you think that will turn out? Like, you're arranging this thing. What are you doing? How long is the boundary? And uh, what is the team you're forming? And is it like you can make the Australian girls play with Associate Nation boys and only then it will work? Or will it become very clear, like, in the beginning only that however great Alyssa Healy is, she cannot really do with, like, the pace of even movie? So how, how are you doing this? You're arranging this exhibition match, yeah. how are we doing it i mean it's very i mean as someone who played a lot of mixed doubles it's like it's the serving that kills the women isn't it it's because the men serve is whatever it is is it 20 percent more uh, which i think is is it 20 percent or 15 percent? whatever the, the difference is uh which is similar in fast bowling as well 
So if you're doing the team, you probably want a team of mostly male fast bowlers. And then if you could find a female spinner who is quick enough through the air um, and you'd look for a female wicketkeeper, I think would be the most obvious uh, choice there. Um, I don't think there's any reason why a female wicketkeeper couldn't be uh, couldn't be successful um, going forward. It seems like a a job that's probably almost the least power based. Also, being short helps, and there's more short women. Um, so I could certainly see how that is a uh, um, an advantage from that point of view. But yeah, I think it'd be. I, I, so I think Meg Lanning. I'm pretty sure this is the case that Meg Lanning has done serious net sessions against top level men and been okay against it. But the problem is, I'll tell you this really good story. Um, there was uh, someone who worked with the England uh, cricket women's team who's quite, who's quite tall. When they bowled to the women, the problem wasn't the quality of the bowling, but the height. And the women said it wasn't a good workout for them because of the height. So if you're doing this mixed team, so someone like Boovy is not going to be a problem. Someone like Kyle Jamieson is going to be a huge problem because Kyle Jamieson is, I mean, what is our tallest woman? And maybe someone like Leah, six foot three or something, or six foot four. If you're suddenly going up against someone who's six foot seven, six foot eight, six foot nine, and has the wingspan to match it, um, I, that, that, they can't, unless they've faced a lot of men um, at that, uh, you know, in, in general. I mean, the men don't particularly handle Kyle Jamieson well, as we've seen from his average, right? So suddenly facing that, uh, Akshar Patel and Kyle Jameson would be an absolute handful just because the direction that the ball's bouncing up at the women would be really tricky. But I would, I would say that that's what you would do. You would probably, probably try and go with fast bowlers who are men, and then you'd probably try and get the women who, probably women who grew up playing a lot of male cricket. So not all women do now because women's cricket is growing so quickly. But if you do have a, a woman who spent more time playing against men, um, they should be more used to the extra speed, but also the extra height and bounce. Um, I remember when Annabelle Sutherland um, first started playing Big Bash. In fact, she might be the, one of the tallest women. Um, James Sutherland's daughter. Um, and watching her bowl, I don't know what her height is, but she looked about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, uh, from my vantage point, but she might have been slightly shorter than that. But she had a very, very high release. And I noticed that the women really had trouble. She wasn't bowling very quick. She was bowling at like 100 kilometers an hour, even slow by women's pace. But everyone was having trouble lining her up just because of the bounce and every ball was coming through. Um, that is uh, something that is going to be, I think, difficult for, um, for, for women. And I wonder, because the, the big difference is when you talk about mixed doubles, I think a lot of women tennis players have probably played a lot against men at a, at a certain age. I'm not sure that's quite, because of mixed doubles, I'm not sure that's quite the case as much, any, especially for modern women's cricketers. Um, I know there's always, there's always some who, who didn't have a local women's league and played men's cricket, but uh, more often than not. So I would say that that would be the problem, but it's, it's a really interesting uh, thing. I mean, you talk about Elise Perry, her batting might hold up, but would, would Elise Perry's bowling be good enough? Um, you know, we're talking about her bowling is, she's probably bowling around Colin de Grandhomme's pace, uh, maybe without his carry off the pitch as well. Um, 
can you fit her in as the fifth bowler? I don't know. Uh, it, it's a really, really interesting one. Um, I don't think we'll ever see it unless uh, Sean Martin from Fairbreak starts doing it or someone like him comes in and does it. But I can't see how anyone uh, would do it. But it's a really interesting uh, theory. But that would be my my team would probably be, yeah, yeah, fast bowlers would be men. Maybe if you could find a really a quicker through the air uh, female spinner and wicked keeper um, and then build up with, with a bunch of uh, women who've spent a lot of time batting against uh, um, uh, men. Also, they could use the pace of the faster bowling, but they wouldn't be able to muscle it down the ground as much, I would assume, as that's only something that's coming in to women's cricket um, of recent times. And they're doing it against people bowling 125 Ks an hour. If you're getting up to 135, 145, that would be tricky. But uh, that was fun. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I hope I answered that question for you, right? But, but, but that was a good one. Yeah. And it's, like, it's fun to think about, right, these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but because I did play a lot of mixed doubles um, and... It, I always found it a really interesting. I always found when you're when you're looking for a mixed doubles partner, you you kind of had to find a woman who was very good at returning fast serves, or you had to find a woman who had a, a naturally, if not powerful, but a naturally um, a, effective serve. And those were the two things you were always looking for, um, and that's kind of what we're talking about with the cricket as well. You, you know, you know, the ability to find both uh, is you know Serena Williams, right? But but if you're looking for a mixed doubles partner, you're probably not trying to find Serena Williams. So it's a bit similar with with, with that cricket team. But thanks for your question. Thank you. All right, I've just got one left in the room from Siddharth. It says in your last podcast, you talked about how Callis averaged a ridiculous amount in the toughest place to bat. Still, people always put him four in the fire of his era is concerned. And if, you're saying that some of that is because of the formats, which is also true. Though through a long period of time, I have Callis over Ponting and maybe Lara. See, I, I've watched a, all, all, a lot of them. Anton Dilker, you can throw in there as well. I, I still would argue that Callis was the least effective of the four, even if he ended up probably with the highest batting average of the four. I think that's right. And part of the reason I think he was the least effective is he didn't have the ability to take the game away from the others in the same way. Now, as far as just pure run scored, what you're saying is probably very fair if you want to have, have him at the top. Lara and Ponting specifically could change the game very, very quickly. Tendilka certainly, uh, uh, you know, uh, had the ability to change the shape of the game. Kellis did it just because you can't average the amount that he did, but I don't think he did it quite in the same way. And I think that it's more than just the multi-formats. It's also the way that he is seen. If you can find an attacking batter who can average 55 and a defensive batter who can average 55, the effect that you have on the game is usually higher from the attacking batter. And I think that's probably what we're looking at with these three players. But Siddharth, it's a very good question. Thank you. In fact, really interesting questions. Again, today, uh, all the way through Patreon through to... Um, Siddharth's question and the the couple of uh, other questions that we had in the chat today. So thanks to everyone there again. If you're watching this video, I'm wearing my Bodyline shirts, one of my favorite designs today. Uh, but big thanks uh, to all the sponsors on the podcast and everyone else and also everyone who helps us out, you know, whether it be buying me a coffee or subscribing to me on Patreon or subscribing to my email. So huge thanks to everyone and we'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on the 99.94 Network. For more information about us, go to 9994dm.com and you can also sign up for our beta launch. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do. And that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. 
And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Bakundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orajasi Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics.